Amen. Thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. All right, all right. It's a good morning, okay? I am excited to be here. Uh, last week, I was out. My family uh, had COVID kind of run through our house. Started two weeks ago, and we made it through the uh, quarantine kind of stuff. I actually never got it. I told my wife all along, I think it'd be easiest if I'm just asymptomatic. <laughs> uh, I don't know how that happened, but uh, anyway, we missed last week. It's good to be back this week, and we're going to dive into the book of Colossians. We've been going through this book uh, this fall, and we got to start out by looking at the introduction of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this little church in a town named Colossae. And he began by encouraging the Colossians' faith and love and hope. And then he prayed big for this little church. And now this week, we get a start in on the body of the letter. It's like the beginning of the middle. And Paul is going to tell us what the letter is all about. I guess more specifically, he's going to tell us who the letter is all about. Today's passage is like Paul introducing us to Jesus. Now, have you ever been introduced? Like sometimes it's no big deal. It's like shaking hands with somebody you've never met before at a work lunch. Sometimes it feels like a really big deal. Like I remember when I was in high school, I was a candidate for homecoming king. <laughs> I know, shocking, right? Um, I was a candidate for homecoming king, and so at the halftime of the football game, I got to stand on the field with my little shoulder pad, my little football out, uh, outfit, uniform, uniform. And then the girls walked onto the field with all their sparkly dresses and met us out there. And over the loudspeaker, they introduced each one of us. And they listed all of the events that we were part of and all the honors that each of us had received. And it was a big to-do and it took a long time. And like most of my other exploits on that football field, this one was a failure, <laughs> all right? It was a big introduction for a royal reject. I did not win the homecoming king vote. Uh, it seemed like an introduction that was like outsized and inflated and kind of like flattery. Maybe you've experienced an introduction like that for a speaker at a conference or a guest lecturer in a class. When it's just outsized and inflated, I always think the introduction, we just skip over that. Who needs it, right? But one time, uh, I, had, uh, I experienced an introduction that kind of captivated me. Before I planted this church, I worked in IT over in Omaha, and my company sent me to a conference, and the keynote speaker was a man named Vint Cerf. Now, I'd never heard of this guy, and so I didn't have high expectations. Uh, there he is. That's Vint Surf. I didn't have very high expectations for the conference until this wise-looking old man took the stage, and the MC says, please help me welcome the man who invented the internet, Vint Surf." And I thought, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> That guy invented the internet? Like IP addresses and packets and networks, the whole thing started in that dome that yeah, we just saw on the screen. Unbelievable. When I heard, help me welcome to the stage the man who invented the internet, all of a sudden I thought, man, what this man has done literally changed the world. It has had an impact on my real life. This guy is amazing. And right from the very beginning of his introduction, I was ready to listen to every word. 
And for an hour, he talked about how the internet began and how he would have changed it if he knew what it would become and uh, where he saw it going in the future. And I did. I just hung on every word this guy spoke. And it all started with the introduction. That introduction was not outsized flattery. It was accurate reality. And that is the kind of introduction that Paul intends to give Jesus here in the book of Colossians. It's going to sound inflated and outsized, but friends, it is not flattery. What Paul has to tell us about Jesus is accurate reality, and this introduction is intended to get us to check in on what Jesus has to say. Are you with me? So as we begin, I want to read this introduction again, and this time um, I want to I highlight the big idea and the three ways that Paul works that out, okay? Big idea, in everything, Jesus is preeminent. Three ways that we see that. He's preeminent in creation, in reconciliation, and he's preeminent right now in real life. All right, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. As I read this again, take in the enormity, the outsized nature of this introduction of Jesus. Okay, here we go. God's word to the Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And all God's people say, Amen. Jesus is incredible because he is preeminent. Now, that's probably not a word that you have sent in a text lately, right? We don't use preeminent often. What does that mean? It's almost hard to even come up with words to define the idea of preeminence. So let me try, okay? I think Jesus' preeminence is his unique, surpassing transcendence over all things. It's his unique, that there is nothing else and no one else like him. He is distinct in preeminence. It is his surpassing nature that anything or anyone else that tries to compete with Jesus at anything, at power, at love, at righteousness, at holiness, at goodness, Jesus surpasses everything. And it is transcendence. It's Jesus in nature, in character, being in a different category than anything else, anywhere else. 
He is not like us because he transcends us. Are you tracking with me? Preeminence, my best effort at a definition, is his unique, surpassing transcendence over all things. Paul says Jesus is preeminent, and he kind of outlines this introduction by saying he's firstborn twice. Did you catch it? Paul says Jesus is firstborn over all creation, and he is firstborn from the dead. He's firstborn twice. And when Paul uses the word firstborn here, he's not talking about birth order. He is not firstborn because he was born first, because he just happened to be the first one that was made. That is not what Paul is saying. Now here, Paul is saying that Jesus is firstborn as a status or a position or a right. In fact, in the Bible, there are lots of stories of people who were considered the firstborn even though they were not born first, okay? We can think of like Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother who went out for a hunt, came home hungry, and sold his birthright to little brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. So Jacob, not, the, not born first, becomes the firstborn of his family. He has the authority and the right to the inheritance, okay? We can go on. Jacob, one day, had, well, over time, had 12 sons. Didn't all happen on one day, right? Over time, he had 12 sons. The first of them was named Reuben. The 11th of those 12 sons was named Joseph. As the story plays out, Joseph becomes the greatest, He's number 11, but he has the authority over the family. The firstborn is not born first. Again, we could look at David. He was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, and yet David is the one who was selected and anointed as king. In fact, Psalm 89 uh, records God's heart for David. Look at these words. God says, and I will make him, David, the firstborn. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So God made David, who was not born first, the firstborn in his family. Are you tracking with me? When Paul says firstborn, he is not talking simply order of events. The thought is deeper and broader than that. So how does Paul explain it? He says, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So as the firstborn of creation, Jesus is the preeminent source and force of all that we know that exists right now. All of life and creation that now exists, exists because of Jesus. He is the preeminent source and force of this life. Paul also says he is the firstborn from the dead, which means Jesus is also the preeminent source and force of the new life believers will experience now and for all of eternity. 
So when the end of this age comes and sin is finally stamped out once and for all and creation is restored, we who believe in Jesus will get to experience a new life because Jesus is preeminent. So in everything, everything in this life, everything in the life to come, Jesus is preeminent. This is what Paul is saying. Now, when we think about Jesus' preeminence in everything, I think there are two things that can trip us up. Two ways that we can misunderstand or get preeminence wrong. Okay, Uh, here they are. Jesus isn't preeminent if he is just like us. And Jesus isn't preeminent if others are just like him. So let's think through this. Paul says Jesus in everything is preeminent. He is not preeminent if he is just like us. Now in the world today, there are all kinds of ways that people think Jesus is just like us. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created just like we were. They would say he is unique in a first among equals sort of way, but when it all boils down, he was created just like us. He's a creature like we are. Well, if Jesus is just like us, he is not preeminent. He does not have a unique, surpassing transcendence over all things. I think today's secular thinkers land in this same area. They, they might say that Jesus was a good leader, uh, that Jesus was a, an influential teacher, an egotistical lunatic, They might say all kinds of things about who Jesus is, but where they agree is that he definitely is not God. Secular thinkers today would agree Jesus was a man just like we are men and women, and if that's true, he is not preeminent. Now, I think this kind of thinking that uh, Jesus is just like us can begin to creep into the church as well. We can begin to think things like, well, Jesus, he's a really good influence on people. Jesus is a really good voice to have in our ears. Jesus is a really good navigator or co-pilot in this life. Jesus is a really good guy. And you can see if those thoughts are left alone, what they can begin to do in our hearts and our minds. They begin to make us think Jesus is an influence just like all the others in the world around us. So if we don't like his advice, we can take it or leave it. If we don't like where he's leading us in life, we can grab the wheel again ourselves. If Jesus is just like us, he is not preeminent and he has no rightful authority in our lives. Are you tracking So one way we can get this wrong is if we think Jesus is just like us. We can get it wrong the other way around, too. If we think that others are just like Jesus. Sure, Jesus is divine, but there are others like that, too. Maybe the Hindu leader Gandhi uh, captures this idea most clearly. He said, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. Sure, Jesus is divine, but there are others like him. I think today's 
spiritualist thinkers, the spiritualism of today lands right here. Spiritualist thinkers say things like, all paths lead to the same destination. There are lots of ways to know God, and each experience of spirituality is valid and good. The spiritualism of today would say, sure, you can think Jesus is divine, but so is everything else and anyone else that all other people think are divine. They're right alongside him. But if others are just like Jesus, he is not preeminent. He doesn't have a unique, surpassing transcendence. If others are just like Jesus, he is not preeminent and he has no rightful authority over our lives. So we can get preeminence wrong if we think others are just like Jesus or Jesus is just like us. But Paul makes it clear neither of those two things are true. Jesus is preeminent in everything. Not just a certain sphere of influence, not just on Sunday mornings, not just for the people who think he is. In everything, Jesus is preeminent. How can Paul say that? Well, let's look at his explanation. He begins by saying Jesus is preeminent in creation. Let me read his words to you again. Paul wrote, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying, he is the first, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And just that word creation, whenever we see it in the Bible, should make our minds think back to Genesis chapter 1, the great account of God's original creation of all that we know to exist right now. And that's not just an accidental word, an illusion that Paul does here in Colossians 1. He is intentionally directing us to think about Genesis 1 because he is about to make connections between that creation and Jesus and show us Jesus' role when that creation happened. He's tying these two things together. So let me show you. A couple ways that he uh, gives parallels between Genesis 1 and Colossians 1. First, in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And then in Colossians 1, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So there's this parallel language about the image of God. We'll dig in in a moment. There's another parallel. In Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. In Colossians 1, the Bible says, By Jesus, all things were created in what? Heaven and on earth. And so he's making connections here, saying Jesus was involved in all of the creation that happened in Genesis 1. Okay? Let's look at each of these parallels. They're going to show us how Jesus is preeminent. Number one, first connection, Jesus is the image of God. Now in Genesis 1, the Bible says God made us 
in his image. Let us make man in our image. That tells us something about us. We are God's image bearers, made in his likeness. But we are not God. You tracking? We're made in God's image, but we are not God. Colossians 1 tells us Jesus is different. He's not like us. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we're made in the image by God. Jesus is the image of God. What does that mean? Well, Paul kind of builds it out later in the letter. I'm going to read to you just a little piece of one verse. Sneak ahead. Colossians 2, 9. Paul says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? It means the whole fullness of deity. All the things that make God God. All of his goodness. All of his power. All of his holiness. All of his love. The whole fullness of God's deity dwells in Jesus' body. He makes visible to us the invisible God. That's a big deal, friends. Why is that such a big deal to people like you and me? Well, let's go back to the story. In Genesis 1, God creates man in his image, and later he's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, living with them, dwelling with them. Adam and Eve get to see him with their own two eyes. I guess four eyes between the two of them. They get to look on God with their own eyes until sin enters the world and separates man and God. When Adam and Eve became sinners, they could no longer exist in the presence of a holy God. And that sinful separation was passed on to their kids and their kids' kids, generation after generation after generation. The people who were created to see God could no longer see him. Sin separated us from God and made him invisible to us. Are you tracking? And then Paul says, Jesus enters the picture and is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes visible to us the God that sin had made invisible. The God that we could no longer see. We can see because of what Jesus did. He is the image of God. Friends, he is preeminent because no one else can reveal God to God's creation like Jesus did. He has a unique, surpassing transcendence as the image of God. You with me? Okay, number one, he is preeminent in creation because he's the image of God. He is also preeminent in creation because of his personal, intimate activity when creation happened, right? Paul's words here in Colossians 1 say all creation, all things. Five times in three verses, Paul says all, all creation, all things, all things, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. 
means Jesus is not JV. He was not baby Jesus being cradled in the father's left arm while his right arm was working creation. This should bolster our Trinitarian theology. Paul says all things were created by him. Jesus did it. And he wasn't just on the sidelines. He says all things were created through him. Jesus was part of it. And if that's not enough, all things were created for him. So all of creation, all of its goodness and glory and joy is made for Jesus. Jesus is one with the creator God of all that was and is and is to come. It says all things in heaven and on earth. So the very things that God created in the beginning are the things that Jesus created. He is one with the creator, which means he is preeminent. There is no other like him worthy of our worship. No man or mountain, no star on the movie screen or star in the sky. He is preeminent in all creation. So, number one, why is Jesus preeminent? He's preeminent in creation. Paul also says that he is preeminent in reconciliation. He goes on in his introduction of Jesus like this. Paul's words, and Jesus is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here, when we talk about reconciliation, we start with a picture of Jesus as the head of a body that Paul calls the church. If Jesus is the head of the body, that sticks right with the preeminent identity of Jesus that we've been talking about. So if Jesus is the head, and that's preeminent, then the question would be, who then is the body, the church, and why is Jesus the head? Good questions. Paul explains. Just like Jesus was in the beginning as the firstborn of creation, he is also the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So when God created all things in the beginning and sin entered in and death through sin, Jesus, it's like he looked out at what was happening and said, that's not the end of the story. I will make a new beginning. Sin and death will not get the last word. This will begin again. New life. And Jesus accomplished that plan when he rose from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. The Bible says, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the very same power of God that breathed life into Adam's nostrils in the first creation was the power that existed in Jesus. All the fullness of God and his power existed in Jesus as he hung on the cross and as his body was laid and sealed into the tomb. And the very same power that breathed life in the beginning into Adam, Jesus 
breathed again in his own body in the grave, thereby conquering death and becoming the firstborn from the dead. When Jesus walked out of that grave as the firstborn from the dead, he proved as a status, he has the power and authority over death and the right to inherit all those who would follow him out of the grave. He's the firstborn from the dead, and that makes him preeminent. So if that's Jesus the head, then who is the body, the church? Well, it would follow that if Jesus paved a way out of death into new life, the church, his body, would be those who follow him into that new life, right? Paul says, uh, through Jesus, that God was pleased that through Jesus he would reconcile to himself all things. And so the church is those who follow Jesus out of death and are reconciled by him. Okay, he's the first, uh, he is preeminent in reconciliation. And so let's dig in here. To be reconciled, we must know what problem needs reconciling? You tracking with me? Like if, if we're reconciled, there was some problem that required reconciliation. And so as the church, as those who have been reconciled by Jesus, we got to know our own story. As a pastor, I get to hear a lot of people's stories. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. It's also one of the hardest parts of my job. You know why? Because every story I've ever heard has one thing in common. It has all been impacted by sin. Every single story of every person that I've ever heard has been impacted by sin. People have been hurt by sin. They are ashamed of their sin. Sin marks every story I've ever heard. And so, friends, I want to get honest with you for a moment about the problem that needs reconciled. It is sin. And let me take it a step further. Sin makes God angry. He's not indifferent to it. Sin is not just a, an accident that we move on from and overcome. Sin is not just the barrier that prevents us from living our best life now. Sin makes God angry. I've heard lots of stories of how sin impacts people's real lives. God knows every story and every sin. And sin makes God angry. Our world was not created to be this way. The sin that has hurt you was not supposed to happen. It makes God angry. When men abuse women. It makes God angry when women manipulate men. It makes God angry when kids are neglected and left to fend for themselves. It makes God angry when the people who are supposed to love you are people who abandon you instead. In those and so many other ways that sin hurts God's people, he is angry about it. And I gotta say, I'm grateful to have a God like that, 
who would look at all the ways that sin has hurt me and the people that I love and know that God is not careless about it. God's angry. He wants sin undone. But we also have to be honest. Man, as much as we can appreciate a God who gets angry at the sin that hurts us, we are not just on the receiving end of sin, right? We're on the other side too. We've both been hurt by the end of sin's spear, but we have held the butt of sin's spear. We are sinners that as much as we are hurt by sin, we dish it back out. And if that's true, that means God is angry with us. It means our sin separates us from God and stirs up his wrath toward us. Later on in Colossians, look at what Paul says to sinners in this church. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Basically a list of sins. What's he say? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sinners, sin makes God angry. It separates us from a holy God, just like it did to Adam and Eve in the beginning. That is the problem that needs reconciled. And so when we ask, who is the church? We say it is those who've been reconciled, but before that, it's those who recognize I need reconciled. My sin has put me in the crosshairs of God's wrath and I can do nothing to make right what my sin has made wrong. I need a savior. Sin makes God angry. With that truth in mind, hear Paul's words again, an introduction to Jesus. For in Jesus All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, how does Jesus reconcile sinners who stood in the crosshairs of God's wrath? Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. He went to the cross so that you don't have to. He took our sin on his shoulders as he took our place on the cross where God's anger was poured out on him instead of us. Because Jesus shed his blood on that cross, our sin is atoned for. Our debt is paid. Our death sentence has been served. And so sinner... Listen, someone needs to hear this. If you know Jesus as your Savior, God's not angry at you anymore. You hear that? I know people, I've been one that carries the burden of my sin. My own wickedness and wretchedness cling to me and I think, how could God be anything but mad at me? How could God do anything but hate me? How could God ever want someone like me? 
Friend, know this. The gospel says Jesus took your sin on his shoulders to pay your death sentence to make peace between you and God now and forever. Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the heart of reconciliation. If you know Jesus, he's made peace between you and God now and forever. Amen? He is preeminent in reconciliation because of his unique, surpassing transcendence, his ability to pay the price for our sin. So Paul closes out this introduction to Jesus by bringing home these great truths that he's, he's preeminent in creation and reconciliation. He brings it home to right here, right now. Listen to his words. He writes, and you, and you, it's like through his pen, he looks into the eyes of the readers and says, you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you sinners, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Friends, Paul says, and you, You who were sinners, Jesus reconciled. This is not a hypothetical situation. It's not a fairy tale with a cliche moral of the story. Jesus was preeminent in the very beginning. He is preeminent in reconciliation, and that means he's preeminent in your life right now. In all things, Jesus is real. And you who were sinners, he has reconciled making peace by the blood of the cross. When you give your life to Jesus, the Bible says he makes you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Just like you were originally created to be. Jesus makes right all that your sin makes wrong. He cleanses you so that you can have peace with God now and forever. That's who Jesus is. That's, what the letter, that's who the letter to the Colossians is all about. And friends, we will spend the rest of our time in this book looking at encouragement in the faith, looking at warnings against being taken captive by the ways of the world, looking at practical instructions for Christian living. Oh, as we go through this book, can we stand on the firm foundation of Jesus' preeminence in everything? If he is preeminent, we can all be encouraged that our faith is legit. If he is preeminent, there is no reason to be captivated by any of the world's empty philosophies. If he is preeminent, he can empower us to live the life he's intended us to live. Amen? Let's pray and thank God that he sent us his son who is the preeminent one. Great and awesome God, I thank you for Colossians. I thank you that you've introduced Jesus to us. I needed this introduction all over again in my life. Oh God, this morning, would you humble us? Not humiliate, humble us that we would get low in heart as we see Jesus' unique, surpassing transcendence in everything. God, even now, Show us your son through your word. God, would you show us his preeminence in creation? 
that it's that is still real even now. That you would show us his hand at work in all things in our lives. Do you reveal that to us? His spirit at work in our hearts. That Jesus is real and active in his people right now. God, would you show us? Would you show us that he is preeminent in reconciliation? For all the ways that we want to live our best lives, all the ways that we want to be better than we are, all the ways we want to be cleansed from the guilt and shame of our sin, all the ways we want to put down the baggage that we carry and be set free from that, God, would you show us Jesus' preeminence in reconciliation? That all of those things can only be found in the blood that he shed on the cross for his people. Oh God, would you be real to us this day and all of our days? Would you get the glory from our lives, from our lips this day and for all of eternity? Jesus, you alone are worthy of it. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.